Lecture 9, The New Proprietaries, The Middle Colonies. I'd like to talk about the Middle Colonies, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and to see if we can't find some underlying similarities within these uh, heterogeneous communities. To a great extent, the Middle Colonies are defined by what they are not, as opposed to what they are. They are not as reliant upon slavery as the southern colonies, the Chesapeake, and in addition, they're probably uh, more urban than the southern colonies. On the other hand, unlike New England, the middle colonies are less nucleated, less organized around uh, uh, churches and individual towns, and in addition, there's much more religious heterogeneity uh, in the middle colonies than we find in New England. So, to a great extent, the middle colonies are a geographic expression, and it's not easy for historians. And as a matter of fact, it has been a very vexing problem for historians to find some central core of the middle colonies, which allows us to designate them as a region for reasons that are not merely geographical. Um, at first... Uh, at first glance, this seems a particularly difficult problem because the origins of the colonies are quite various. And not only are they quite various in their origins, but they're various in the way in which they develop and in which they expand. Uh, New York and Pennsylvania are the two most important of the middle colonies. Uh, 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 Delaware and New Jersey are rather secondary. And if we look at New York and Pennsylvania in particular, we will find a great deal of dissimilarity between the two. Now, in the case of New York, it's first settled by Europeans in 1624, and the Dutch make the initial landing there. They find that the Hudson River is a likely vehicle for trade, and in addition to that, it seems that they can build defensible outposts on the islands at the mouth of the Hudson River, and this results in the founding of New Amsterdam. Now, New Amsterdam is a very tiny settlement. There are, there are not a tremendous amount of people there. It's primarily a trading outpost. The Dutch didn't have a tremendous volume of, of settlers moving across the Atlantic Ocean. Their first concern was to establish commercial outposts, which is why they go up the Hudson River and eventually found not just New Amsterdam, but also the city that would become Albany, New York. Now, although the Dutch settled in Manhattan, in fact, they only settle a tiny fraction of it, which gives you some idea of the smallness of their outpost. Those of you who have ever been to Wall Street or who perhaps work on Wall Street, well, Wall Street used to have a big wall on it, which is how it got the name. And the wall was intended to keep Indian raiders out. And if you stop and think about what a tiny fraction of Manhattan is south of Wall Street, the Battery and a few other large buildings now, you realize the Dutch outpost was very, very small. And one of the reasons why the lower part of Manhattan um, has so many unusual twists and turns in its streets is due to the fact that Dutch cow paths were the original uh, <laughs> grid for lower Manhattan. It's quite clear if you go back and look at the evidence in terms of architecture or geography um, how small and tenuous the Dutch settlement was. Now, in addition to trying to set up commercial outposts, particularly for the beaver trade with the Indians, um, the Dutch tried to establish very large land grants across the, uh, the valley of the Hudson River. And these were called patroonships. 
And this was an attempt by the Dutch to do something analogous to what the English were trying to do, to replicate, replicate in the New World a sort of quasi-feudal social structure. In other words, large land grants would be made to specific individuals who were given the land on the assumption that they could bring over a given number of colonists. The idea being that they would improve the land, that the landowners, the patroons, would be able to extract a surplus from them, and that the Dutch would get a, a colony which was ready-made at a minimum amount of expense. So one of the things that should be noted in the initial Dutch settlement of the, not just New York, but the whole Hudson River Valley, is the fact that very large land grants will be made, and this will have an important influence on the further development of the colony later on. Now, the Dutch colony at New Amsterdam was short-lived. Um, there were a series of trade wars between the Dutch and English because trade and commerce is the lifeblood of political life. Um, in, between 1661 and 1664, uh, the English conquered the Dutch, took over the colony, and of course they fought back and forth for a number of years. The Dutch reoccupied the colony in 1673 to 74, and then it was finally surrendered to a Dutch, uh, or rather to an English uh, official, Sir Edmund Andros, in 1674. It remained English thereafter. So it wasn't until 1674 that it became permanently English. And, in particular, it became a proprietary colony. The Duke of York lent his name to New York. That's why it was changed from New Amsterdam to New York. And because it was a proprietary colony, it was founded around the idea of making money. The business of proprietary colonies was to enrich the proprietors and to create a stab an established society which would generate future income streams. So the... It, to a particular extent, and uh, with, with a, a very definite force, the proprietary colonies, both New York and Pennsylvania, are concerned with the turning of a profit. They are going to be largely commercial colonies. Now, in the furtherance of this, these commercial ideals, of these commercial intents, uh, the New York legislature put together a Charter of Liberties in, 1673, uh, in, in 1683, and this would allow for things like uh, equality before the law, and it would allow for things like a trial by jury. It was essentially a libertarian document. It was annulled and not accepted by the English authorities in 1685, but the idea was that these commercial men were interested in, maintain, in creating a political and governmental organization which will further their property interests, further their commercial interests, and establish things like equality before the law and the, uh, the sanctity of contract and things like that. So they were looking for a great deal of autonomy, but at the same time a great deal of security. They wanted a minimum amount of outside interference, and they wanted a certainty that they would be able to keep their property. Now, let's contrast that with the origins of New York with the origins of uh, Pennsylvania. It's worth considering that Pennsylvania had relatively few land grants that were large. Small household farms, 40 acres, 60 acres, 100 acres, were much more common in Pennsylvania. Um, in 1680, a grant was made to Sir William Penn, who was the father of the, uh, the uh, of the William Penn that, uh, that came to the, uh, Pennsylvania. He established a frame of government in 1682, which was rather like and certainly influenced the Charter of Liberties that we found in New York in 1683. And what Penn wanted to do was particularly to establish religious liberty. Penn was a Quaker, and Quakers were persecuted in England at the time. They were not an, a respectable brand of Protestantism at the time. And for that reason, Penn was hoping to create in Pennsylvania an area which would be free of religious uh, inquisition, fr uh, free of religious bigotry, which would allow, for at least for all Protestants, to live together in harmony. 
So he emphasized the idea of freedom of religion and freedom of conscience in his uh, frame of government, and it was revised over the years, but the idea of religious toleration was very important in the history of Pennsylvania, and for that reason, it attracted not just Quakers, but Huguenots and Anglicans, of course, and in addition, Baptists and Lutherans, a whole collection of various Protestant sects settled in small family farms in Pennsylvania. In that respect, it was quite different from the pattern of settlement that we saw under the Dutch and later under the English, which granted very large tracts of land in the development of New York. Now, by 1701, a Charter of Liberties had been written for Pennsylvania, which included many of the great uh, liberties that became celebrated when America became its own independent country. Things like freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of religion were all built into the Charter of Assemblies, and this maintained itself as the Constitution of Pennsylvania right down to the Revolution. So from 1701, the hand of, of Penn was seen in the establishment of certain kinds of civil liberties, and this tradition was very important in developing the expectation of civil liberties that was characteristic of the American Revolution. Now, in addition to this tradition of civil liberties, particularly this idea of freedom of religion, Penn was an international thinker, and that was very, very important. In other words, Penn was a very broad-minded individual. He had traveled considerably in Europe and knew that there was a great deal of religious persecution going on in Western Europe, and that this made possible an increasing population for Pennsylvania if he could persuade Germans or the, the Dutch or the Swedes or even the French Huguenots to come and settle in Pennsylvania. And this did turn out to be a great attraction. The idea of religious liberty brought many different nationalities and many different Protestant sects to Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania from the very outset was intentionally international and intentionally um, uh, multi-sectarian. The, the result was religious toleration created the possibility of these multicultural communities, but in addition to that, it helped these multicultural communities flourish because people were inclined to come to a place where they wouldn't be persecuted. This was the exception rather than the rule in 1700, and that's one of the reasons why Pennsylvania thrived to the extent that it did. Now, New Jersey, to a great extent, was a secondary colony. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, perhaps the most important and influential man of the, uh, of the uh, middle colonies, once said that New Jersey is like a keg tapped at both ends because northern New Jersey was the market was a market and a, and a kind of backcountry to New York City. Southern New Jersey had a powerful Quaker influence, was very closely associated with Philadelphia. So for that reason, uh, cities developed, and this, uh, the urban commercial life was very important in the middle colonies. Big cities developed in New York at the mouth of the Hudson and also in Philadelphia. And New Jersey turns out to be a split market, which helps the development of urban commercial life in both New York and Philadelphia. Uh, and to a great extent, New York and New Jersey were identified in political life. It wasn't until 1738 that a separate government governor was appointed for New Jersey. Prior to 1738, the governor of New Jersey and the governor of New York were always the same person. So it turns out that it's not until fairly late in the colonial period that New Jersey begins to get its own separate identity. Uh, the same sort of problem emerges with Delaware. Delaware doesn't pull out, doesn't, uh, isn't eliminated from the uh, land holding of Pennsylvania until the early 18th century. And although the, the assembly in Delaware begins to meet in 1704, 
Pennsylvania and Delaware had the same governor right down to the revolution. So the two key, st- uh, the, the two key states in the middle colonies are Pennsylvania and New York, and to a great extent this is a function of the fact that they had commercial urban life, which allowed them a great deal of political influence in, in the hinterland. So if you look at Pennsylvania and New York, you are looking at the most important elements in the middle colonies. Now, it's important to think about the process by which people would go about settling the middle colonies. And for the most part, rivers are unusually important here. Because rivers gave an easy access to the backcountry, an easy access both to the Indian trade and to unpatented, unclaimed land, they were very attractive to the new settlers. And if you stop and think about it, those of you that have driven a Route 95, or those of you who have driven, say, the New York State Thruway or the Pennsylvania Turnpike, know full well how hard it would be to get anywhere if you didn't have highways. Now imagine the first colonists coming to New York State, or coming to New Jersey, or coming to Pennsylvania, how are they going to get away from the coast? Well, they it would certainly be virtually impossible, or certainly very, very difficult, to hack your way through the forest. The best thing to do is to take the water route and then get off at some convenient spot and settle there. You will find that the patterns of settlement in the middle colonies follow the contours of the rivers. And, of course, the most important example of that is the Hudson River in New York. Uh, uh, There was a thriving trade in beaver skins from the earliest Dutch days in New York, and that's the reason why people used to use the Hudson River as the main commercial artery up and down New York State. That's why Albany becomes an important trading post and eventually the capital of New York State, and that's also why most of the big land grants are made on the banks of the Hudson River. Things like Livingston Manor, all right, Cortland Manor, Rensselaerswick, all of these go back to the early colonial period in New York when giant manors were being laid out, huge tracts of land. In addition to the Hudson River, the Delaware River was very important. Uh, the Delaware River was com- was a, uh, com- had a combined ethnicity of Swedish Lutherans that had come in very early. They had tried to establish a new Sweden about the same time that the Dutch were establishing New Amsterdam, and they met pretty much the same fate because the English came in and overwhelmed both New Sweden and New Amsterdam. But the Swedes stayed there. If you drive down Route 95, you will see at the bottom of Pennsylvania, Swedesboro, and obviously that name goes back quite considerably in the history of Pennsylvania. So in the Delaware River, you find Quakers, because they are so important in the settling of the middle colonies, and also Swedish Lutherans. Um, In the Susquehanna River, that is largely settled by Germans. German Lutherans, German Mennonites, and Moravians settle up and down the Hudson River. And you may mistakenly believe that simply because they spoke German, that they were quite a cohesive group. In fact, for the most part, these were small, self-contained communities, and when language doesn't serve as a barrier between people, often religion does. So you will find that Lutherans of various descriptions, uh, speaking Swedish or German, will form separate communities, and also people speaking the same language, German or Dutch, will form separate communities sometimes based upon religion. So what we find in the middle colonies is a heterogeneous grouping of people that to a great extent form separate communities. This is both a consequence of religious toleration and it's also a, a kind of help to religious toleration because nothing else would really be possible. There were too few Anglicans and certainly too few Congregationalists to, establish, to create an established church which could develop without tremendous popular opposition. So what we'll find in the middle colonies is a great deal of heterogeneity. Heterogeneity of religion, heterogeneity of, of language, and also heterogeneity of nationality. In addition to this heterogeneous mix of nationalities and religions, we'll also find quite a heterogeneous economy. 
for the most part, there was not one staple crop, crop in the middle colonies. The beaver pelt trade and the deerskin trade were important for New York and Pennsylvania, um, but that had a limited amount of possibility because as the deer and as the beaver were gradually eliminated, it became harder and harder to find the source of that trade and also the Indians are gradually being pushed back. For that reason, they went to a combination of wheat and livestock. Wheat was the main cereal grain of the middle colonies. They exported a great deal, but the problem was that wheat was not an especially profitable crop. You could turn a small profit on it, but it wasn't nearly so profitable, for example, as rice was in South Carolina. What that meant is that because you couldn't grow a very profitable crop like rice in the middle colonies, people stuck to wheat and their returns were modest. And that means that a small family farmer could produce sufficient for himself and his family, and by selling off some of the surplus, he could gain uh, access to markets and gain a little bit of money to pay his taxes and to buy some consumer goods. But there was rarely a tremendous accumulation of wealth in the middle colonies. You could make a pretty good subsistence as a family farmer, but you were not likely to become rich. To become rich, you had to be living in one of the plantation zones, and you had to get control of labor. What we had is in a mixed agricultural economy is production for market, and often a, a, man, a man and a wife and a family come settle down, clear the land, start growing a few crops to subsist on and to sell to the market to, meet, to make ends meet, and then sell off the cleared land at a profit and then move further west. That process and that pattern is seen in, throughout the history of, the, of, the, of colonial America, but it's particularly important in the colonial middle colonies. That's one way in which a, a small family farmer could accumulate wealth, by clearing the land, by getting roads put in towards his land, which make it more accessible, which increase its value, which allows him to sell and buy land further on the frontier. A larger piece of land, and again, the same process would be replicated. What's most important about the middle colonies is that they have cities and city life, and in particular, a merchant elite emerges in these cities, and this is where the real money is. In the history of the United States, you can never completely separate money and political influence. That's, I mean, understandable enough. The places in the middle colonies where we're going to find the greatest amount of wealth will be in these commercial elites that develop in the cities, and it's very important to note that these kinship elites are... Uh, or that these, kin that these mercantile elites are based upon the idea of kinship. You see, it's very hard to know who you can trust if you are trading with the Sugar Islands or if you are trading with Western Europe. If you want to make sure that you're getting a proper accounting of your goods when they're shipped to England, you'd best have some member of your family there to meet the ship when it comes in. In other words, family ties are one of the things that expedite the process of developing large mercantile ties. It's much harder when people are not bound by relations of blood because communication and transportation are very difficult. A reckoning of a time is money. A reckoning of accounts can be quite uh, a long and painstaking operation, and you don't know who to trust so far away. If someone says that your goods were damaged in transit, unless it's your brother or your son or your father, how do you know whether to trust them or not? If someone signs on and swears an affidavit, how do you know he's not taking money under the table? Corruption is too easy, given the relatively primitive communication and transportation system. That's why kinship networks are very important to the development of these commercial elites. Now, in addition to these kinship ne networks that we find in both Philadelphia and New York City, we're also going to find that the social structure will be very good for small family farmers. Um, people that come over from England or from other parts of Western Europe, from France or from Germany, 
often are desperately poor. Remember that, for the most part, the people that come to the United States were losers back at home. Very rarely does the king of any country decide to go and start a farm in Pennsylvania. If you are doing great back in Western Europe, there's no reason for you to want to leave. In other words, America is the kind of cast-off, to a great extent, of Western Europe at this time. What that means is that the people coming to America, assuming that they're not enslaved, are coming because they are desperately poor and want to try a fresh start. Because of their poverty, often they had to come over as indentured servants. Now, an indentured servant would come over and would not be able to pay for his passage, which is quite expensive at the time and also quite dangerous come over on shipboard, and the captain would sell him as part of the cargo, would sell him for a limited amount of time, usually seven years, and he would, uh, the indentured servant would, would work for someone in the colony for seven years, and the person who bought the indenture would pay the captain a given price, and that would compensate the captain for the cost of moving the indentured servant over to the new world. Now, that process was quite common. It was probably more common in the 17th century than in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, a new form of indenture develops, which is very important for the peopling of the middle colonies because it, is one of the, because it was one of the most popular ways of having people come to the middle colonies. Remember that very few people, particularly poor whites who are going to work with their hands, very few of them want to go to the south because they don't want to compete with slave labor. So, understandably enough. On the other hand, very few of them, unless they're Congregationalists, I mean, want to go to New England because of the fact that New England has that religious homogeneity, doesn't allow for very much in the way of religious freedom. So if people want religious freedom and if they want a chance to increase, the, uh, to better their lot economically, the middle colonies was the place to go. And a new form of indenture comes in. It's called redemption. And the people who engage in this are called redemptioners. And for that reason, uh, the middle colonies get a, a name as being the best poor man's country. One of the great books on uh, the history of colonial Pennsylvania is called The Best Poor Man's Country. And this book shows the ways in which a poor individual could come to Pennsylvania and do tolerably well. Probably wouldn't become the analog of a millionaire, but could have a fairly comfortable life, far more comfortable than they would have had at home. Now, redemption is different from an indenture in the following way. If you have a little bit of money, and particularly if a family has been working for sometimes some months trying to get up the cost of passage, and a ship is leaving, what you would do is pay part of the passage and become a redemptioner rather than an indentured servant. So if it costs 10 pounds to cross the Atlantic, you could put up 3 pounds or 5 pounds and say, for the balance that is owed to the ship captain, I, and more usually, I and my family will become redemptioners. So if a man and wife and several children were to cross, they still had a balance left on the cost of their, cost of their passage, they would say, I will redeem that cost when I get to Philadelphia or when I get to New York. What they would do is something like this. Instead of being sold, instead of being a kind of a chattel, um, being sold by the ship captain, they would be allowed to go ashore and they would be given either a week or a month, some small period of time in which to strike the best bargain that they could. Now, since they weren't obligated to do the full seven years as an indentured servant would, often redemptioners would come to the New World and would only be obligated, could get, they could get a good deal. Remember that the control of labor is key throughout colonial America, and the price of labor is much higher in colonial America than it is back in Western Europe. So you can sell your skills and the skills of your family and children 
at a relatively high price, and you will have only a small amount of time to redeem. So often a redemptioner would come to Philadelphia and sell the, his services and the services of his family for one year, 18 months, two years. And for that reason, it was possible to get a very quick start in life. You come in, your, uh, the balance of your passage is paid to the captain for, uh, as soon as you sign your, your redemption certificate, and then you work for somebody for a year. If you do that, you can come in, and then once you finish your year, go back, settle on attractive land, and become a small subsistence farmer. Not only will you make subsistence, you'll be able to feed your family, but you will, in addition, be able to sell some for market, gradually accumulate wealth as your land is cleared, and then start the process of extending the frontier once again. So uh, the Middle Colonies got the name of being the best poor man's country, and that's probably, um, uh, there's a certain degree of truth in that. In addition to that, there was very little slavery, which is also quite important. Slavery was mostly confined to the Chesapeake and even, to a greater extent, to the lower south, South Carolina. And since slavery was rare and generally only found in the urban areas, there wasn't too much competition between free labor and slave labor that kept the wages high, which was always of great concern to people that would be working with their hands. Um, more than 90% of the people in the middle colonies were farmers. So although I'm emphasizing the importance of cities because that's where a great deal of the political intrigues go on and that's where we have a good bit of the commerce and the concentrated wealth, most people in the middle colonies were small family farmers. And uh, except in New York, which had a great deal of tenant farm or a great deal of large landholding and some degree of tenant farming, most of the farmers in the middle colonies owned their own land. And that, of course, was the great uh, uh, goal for many people coming to the, to, to the colonies. They wanted to own their own land. It was a land-hungry society. Now, I should emphasize the heterogeneity of the Middle Colonies, particularly both religious and, heter and, and ethnic. Um, we had New England Congregationalists who had been gradually extending the borders of New England to the point where uh, most of uh, eastern Long Island, uh, things like uh, Southampton and South Holt, are settled by Puritans or Congregationalists, rather, Yankees. Um, in addition to uh, New England Congregationalists who are in northern New York State and uh, also in Long Island and also in northern New Jersey, uh, we also have the Dutch Reformed. Remember that the Dutch had never been completely displaced, particularly from New York, so there's a considerable number of Dutch Reformed churches in the valley of the Hudson River. In addition to that, um, the there's quite a few Dutch in Delaware as well. Quakers had always been important in Pennsylvania and, southern, and the southern part of New Jersey. Uh, and there are Quakers also in Delaware as well. And Anglicans are to be found in every colony, but there were never any substantial number of them except in the cities. Uh, cities were the center of political control. Uh, Anglican, the Anglican church was the established English church. So most of the Anglicans to be found will be found in those commercial uh, centers. And uh, in addition to Anglicans, there are Presbyterians. We have Scotch-Irish eventually in the back country of all of the middle colonies. There's a sprinkling of Baptists, particularly in New York. And there are even a few Jews and Catholics, although there are very few of those. There are some Sephardic Jews from the Dutch times that remained in uh, Manhattan. But for the most part, there weren't very many Jews or Catholics. Toleration then meant toleration for Protestant denominations. To us, that may sound somewhat sectarian, but in fact, for the place and the time, it was actually a step forward in religious freedom. So for the most part, there was a considerable degree of religious toleration. But stop and think about it. What choice did they have? With the Dutch Reformed and the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Quakers, there was no way to effectively create a, 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 a state religion. It was very hard 
to avoid the need for religious tolerance. Now, once the Great uh, Awakening occurs um, and the status of ministers declines even further because many of them are attacked for being cold, many of them are attacked for being unreconstructed and not not being sufficiently enthusiastic, as the status of ministers declines, the possibility of creating a religiously homogeneous society becomes essentially a a non-question. For that reason... This heterogeneity will lend itself to the development of, first of all, factional politics, but second of all, to a sort of tolerant conception of politics, which doesn't try and force things into one cultural mold, the way which we saw, say, the history of New England. Now, if it is true that Penn was on to something in establishing religious toleration, that he was a forward-looking man as well as being a humane man, it's worth looking into the kind of factions that do emerge between the proprietors and the people who are living in these colonies. Now, in every case, a proprietary colony has contradictory imperatives. The proprietors want to make money, and they want to make money now in their lifetime. The people that colonize the society don't want to ship money back to the proprietors. What they want is the, the capital to remain there so that it can be used to further develop what they understand to be a wilderness. So there's always a certain degree of tension between the colonists and the proprietors. And for that reason, factions inevitably emerge. And these factions will primarily be centered in the cities because that's the locus of political power. And because political power and these commercial elites organized around kinship will find that the initial factions have a great deal to do with family infighting. Um, Many of the great families of New York, for example, used to have all kinds of factional squabbles throughout their history, and they could only unite when they were trying to argue with the proprietors or when they they had some common enemy. But if you think about uh, names like Rensselaer and Schuyler and Delancey, if you know Delancey Street in uh, southern Manhattan, Livingston, Livingston Street in southern Manhattan, Clinton, Hunter, Morris, all these famous families used to jockey for political preferment and position, used to try and get choice land holdings, choice positions within the, within the colonial government, and they used to intermarry to a great extent. So for this reason, these commercial and political elites used to argue among themselves and also coalesce in one unified group when they had a common problem with the proprietors. A similar kind of pattern emerges in Pennsylvania. Uh, Logan and Lloyd and Keith um, formed pro- and anti-proprietary groups or factions, and the Quakers on the whole, because Penn was a co-religionist, almost always supported the proprietors. For that reason, there was relatively little anti-proprietary conflict in Pennsylvania. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. Now, uh, what we find in the the development of these factions is that there's a a kind of breaking point at the time of the Glorious Revolution, 1789 or so, and that kind of is a turning of the corner for these proprietary colonies. For a while, due to the political instability in England, what we'll find is that, for example, New York has its proprietary uh, proprietary status pulled away and is put under the dominion of, uh, of New England under Andros, which is, uh, begins, becomes part of a super colony with, uh, with New England. New York gets shunted in that direction. And one of the results of the, uh, of the glorious revolution in, uh, in uh, New York is that there was a rebellion. Uh, a, a man named Jacob Leisler 
tried to make sure that Protestantism, particularly the, the reign of William and Mary, would be defended because he wasn't sure about Andros and wasn't sure about the possibility of a connection with the Catholic kings of England. So what he did was chase out the royal governor, and one of the results of that was that when royal government was reestablished, Leisler was hanged, and many of the earlier factions began to change in their direction, uh, a process of Anglicization, of making New, uh, New York a more English colony, of having a greater degree of English influence, began and continued on to the period of the, of the American Revolution. Um, uh, at the time of the uh, Glorious Revolution, Penn was replaced by a royal governor, but he re returned, uh, became proprietor again of Pennsylvania in, in 1694 and came in 1699 to become a resident governor, and that's very, very important. For the most part, proprietors did not live in the colonies that they owned. They would try and milk it from England. Penn was a resident proprietor. That meant there was considerably less corruption, and you could actually get to the boss. So it had the effect of smoothing all, all over at least some of the factional difficulties. Now, one of the most important and perhaps a signal events in the history of the Middle Colonies was the trial of John Peter Zenger. Now, those of you who know the, about the Zenger trial, it's one of the landmark cases in, of freedom of the press in the uh, American tradition. And what happened? It was in 1734 and 5. And what happened is something like this. Zenger was part of one of these factions within New York City politics, and he criticized Governor Crosby, or Cosby, because of some arbitrary ruling that he had made. Now, at this time, merely to publish a, uh, a criticism of the government was seditious. You could be put in jail for it, and it was, a, I mean, a high offense. And at this time, merely the fact that the criticism that was published was true had not been established as a defense. In other words, you weren't allowed to publish the sort of scathing critique of the governor that Singer did publish, even if it were true. This is one of the landmark cases in of freedom of the press. What happened is that the governor had him prosecuted for seditious libel, and he had him kept in jail, incommunicado, for ten months. And when he was allowed to, uh, to stand trial, Andrew Hamilton... Uh, a famous Philadelphia lawyer came up, argued the case, and won on the basis of the, fa of the argument that the criticism that had been published was true. Now, much of the data, or much of the evidence showing that his criticism was true had been left out, had been ruled inadmissible. But the trial, because the, the jurors were swayed by it, the jury went with John Peter Zenger and established one of the landmark freedom of, of the press cases in the history of the United States. Now, the United States, of course, doesn't exist yet, but if you think of the Constitution, not in the American sense, but in the British sense of an established series of traditions, at the point of the John Peter Zenger case, freedom of the press becomes part of the American Constitution in that British sense, in the sense of an established body of traditions. And that's why this is such an important case. It also suggests that factional infighting had become so nasty and so bitter that the government that was standing would do anything to squelch it. When that was taken away, it meant that factional infighting became that much more difficult and became that much more nasty. And the elaboration of these factions will generate the first 
gropings towards a political party system. And this is in some ways what the most important thing about um, the pre-revolutionary generation is. Established splits, which are based upon factions of various kinds. There's an upcountry, for example, and a lowcountry faction. There's a coastal faction and there's an interior faction. Think of the history of, uh, uh, of upstate and downstate New York. That, faction, that factionalization exists today. There's a, uh, a court and a country party. There are the people surrounding the uh, governor and there are those who are in opposition to the governor. There are factions based upon family, upon religion, upon uh, language. There are a tremendous number of factional uh, groups within the, uh, the middle colonies. What happens is that they make the best of a bad situation, particularly at the time of the Zenger trial. People start publishing pamphlets and letters to the effect of, say, well, look, parties may not be so bad. Perhaps we can live with these factions if they are not too dangerous, if they will regulate themselves, police themselves, if they will restrict themselves to publishing that which is true, then they may actually form a salutary part of the government. And this is a political breakthrough in many respects. Remember that in the whole history of Western political thought, faction and party was always thought of as being an evil. If you go back and look at the Federalist Papers, uh, trying to, you know, stumping for the ratification of the Constitution, they said we will prevent faction and party from developing. They hadn't completely gotten to the point where they were willing to accept the legitimacy of faction and party. It's not going to be until Edmund Burke, quite late, is going to uh, develop a theory which will say, look, if you're going to have representative government, you have to allow for difference of opinion. And if you're going to have difference of opinion and difference of interest, then you have to allow for the idea of a loyal opposition. Well, long before Edmund Burke thought up the idea of a loyal opposition, in theory, in practice, the middle colonies had developed some such system. You have to allow for the certain degree of dissent. You have to allow for established factionalization within a democratically or at least a representatively organized society. And if that's going to be the case, then we are moving towards a new political order. I'd be tempted to say that that's the main political contribution that we're going to see in the middle colonies. And the pre-revolutionary generation is going to take these ideas and make them part and parcel of the ideas for which the American Revolution will be fought. Now, uh, in 1750, the middle colonies had established elites and they were in a thriving condition. Um, be, uh, at 1750, between 1700 and 1750, the population in the middle colonies had doubled every 25 years, and their economies had just gone off the charts. Um, the uh, amount of imports in New York between 1730 and, and 1740 uh, was, uh, uh, was one-third the amount of imports to New York between 1760 and 1770. Same sort of thing happened in Pennsylvania. We saw a five-fold increase in imports in just 30 years. Somebody was making a lot of money, and where you find money, you find political power. So these factions, which are organized around various internal local problems, are now developing a certain degree of clout. There's a certain degree of intermarriage between leading families. So we are seeing a homegrown colonial elite develop. And the generation between, say, 1720 and 1770, this homegrown colonial elite will be a leading element in the development of a, a legitimate revolutionary group that wants to separate away. When we have uh, an elite 
which is conscious of its own power and which is well established in the middle colonies, they will be open to the possibility of breaking away. They will see as much to gain as there is, at least, at least as much to gain as there is to lose. So this will be important in making possible the people that will develop the American Revolution in the middle colonies. Um, these self-conscious colonial elites um, are family-oriented, they're largely commercial, and you can see actually in the development of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, it starts as an academy in 1751, and the development of Columbia University, which starts uh, in 1754, this is exactly the time when these homegrown, well-established elites have said, now let us have our own educational system. That's another way of establishing a sort of cultural separation from the mother country. So the development of, of, system of institutions of higher higher education in Philadelphia and New York in the 1750s in some ways signalizes the development of the, and the, uh, the power of these homegrown elites. But it's not just a question of elites. As the historian Gary Nash has pointed out, in the cities, particularly in New York and, and Philadelphia, urban artisans poor people, people that work with their hands, also become politically influential. The development of factional politics is a double-edged sword. The, particularly, it's exacerbated by the growth of pamphlets and newspapers. Once the Zenger trial establishes the fact that you cannot be jailed for seditious libel if what you're writing is true, well, people take certain liberties with the truth, and a whole group of newspapers, some of them scandalous and scurrilous, do in fact develop, and this helps mobilize the urban artisans. This helps helps get the lower orders of society interested in politics as well. So there are various kinds of riots, usually about particular specific local issues, but these mob actions and riots, which are an established tradition before 1770, will become very important in, as we move towards the American Revolution. So both the activation or the political activity of of artisans and the political activity of local commercial and familial, familial elites suggests that the middle colonies by 1750 or 1770 have developed a certain degree of autonomy. This autonomy is not recognized in law, but it will be after the revolution, but it is a, a mature society by 1750. It is mature in its heterogeneity. It is mature because it has developed a political theory which is adequate to the unusually heterogeneous conditions that they faced, and that, may I suggest, is what makes the middle colonies in some ways a cultural clump as unified as New England or the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake has slavery as a unifying principle, and certainly South Carolina does. New England has religion as a unifying principle and has the idea of the Puritan village or the, the village surrounding the church as a unifying principle. The middle colonies weren't nucleated to that extent and they didn't have that much slavery. But what they did have was heterogeneity. And strangely enough, the political consequences of this heterogeneity are a political culture which in fact unifies the middle colonies. They are unified by their diversity. I know that sounds like a strange and rather contradictory thought, but in fact there's a considerable degree of tolerance. There's a considerable degree of factional infighting, but it's not taken to the point of civil war, which is what the, which is what the criticism of factional infighting had always been, that it leads to civil war. In fact, they managed to create the first loyal opposition in America. And the idea of a loyal opposition is an enormously sophisticated thought. It takes a great deal of political maneuvering and political thought and political work to make a loyal opposition possible. It is this loyal opposition and the idea that faction is not necessarily an evil thing that makes 
the middle colonies an important contributor to the ideology of the American Revolution and to the ideology of the United States. They allow for freedom of dissent so long as it's kept within regulated bounds. They are making a virtue of necessity, but in so doing, what they did was create a regional culture that is based not just on geography, but on ethnic and, uh, uh, ethnic and political necessity. To get, uh, and I'll close with this idea. If I had to choose one person who's the most important epitome of the middle colonies, I would have to choose Benjamin Franklin. Because he, he's, well, he's a, a famous scientist, a famous politician, he's an important inventor, he's a self-made man. In many respects, Benjamin Franklin is the epitome of the middle colonies. He, he's born in Boston, and interestingly enough, he comes early enough, he's 17 years old, he's apprenticed to a printer in Philadelphia. He eventually buys the print shop that he worked in, starts his own newspaper, newspapers being very important in mobilizing political opinion. That makes him an opinion maker. That makes him a highly respected, well-known man. He can found a political career on that. So to a great extent, Benjamin Franklin, and you should re incidentally read his autobiography. When you're studying the history of colonial America, nothing is more worthwhile or useful than to read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. While it is a bit self-congratulatory, it tells you a great deal about the history of colonial America and the mentalité of the middle colonies in particular. And I would, I would close with this. It's worth noting that in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, when he's coming south, leaving Boston, because he's born there in 1706, he's coming south looking for a place to settle. And he bypasses New York, decides not to settle there permanently, and goes down to Philadelphia. And the reason why is this. The middle colonies had a reputation for being the best poor man's country, but in fact, it was regional within the middle colonies. The best poor man's country was really Pennsylvania. That's the place where a poor man could, make a, could get a good living and then rise if he were lucky and diligent. New York, because of its tradition of highly stratified society and, in addition, large land grants, which made it hard to accumulate land, meant that there were very, many fewer yeoman farmers there as a percentage of society. It was harder to rise in New York. The man that wanted to rise, that wanted to make something of himself, would go to Pennsylvania. And the best example of such a man is Benjamin Franklin.